This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi again, everybody. This is Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast. Well, it's another special day, and we're fortunate to have another great guest joining us. To commemorate World Day for Safety and Health at Work, we're pleased to be joined by Ms. Delissa Jiang, the Director of Sustainability and Advocacy at CropLife Asia. Hi, Delissa. Hi, Duke. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for joining us. Well, um, as I mentioned, it is World Day for Safety and Health at Work. And when it comes to agriculture and the farmers who grow the food that we depend on, there really couldn't be a more important topic uh, than safety and health on the job. And I know CropLife Asia and its members are a strong proponent of responsible use with plant science technologies and work through a number of stewardship initiatives to promote those responsible use practices on the farm. Can you share a little bit about those uh, those practices that relates to as it relates to safety and health? Definitely. And, and before I begin, wishing everyone a happy war day for safety and health at work. So safety and health is at the heart of our farmer stewardship activities. And I'm very happy today to explain more about stewardship because it's a word that um, may not be familiar to many um, on what it means. But really, like what you said today uh, is highly appropriate because safety and health is really at the center of it. But when we talk about safety and health, we're not only talking about farmers, but also consumers and environment. For farmers, of course, it is about protecting their health and exposure when they handle pesticides. For consumers, it's about ensuring food safety by encouraging practices that manage the residue levels of pesticides that are applied to crops um, at, at safe levels. And finally, for the environment, it's about ensuring the safety and health of bystanders that are in proximity of the farms or useful insects that could be exposed to pesticide spray, such as bees that help to pollinate crops, and also nearby waterways where pesticides could have potential runoff and harm fishes. So that's a lot of health and safety elements to look at. And so that's why at CropLife, our stewardship is managed through what we call a life cycle approach to take into account safety and health very comprehensively at every step of the life cycle of a pesticide, from its manufacture, to its storage, transport and distribution, to its usage, and finally to its disposal. So for example, in the manufacturing process, a lot of research goes into how we can make this chemical safer. It is not just on the product alone, but a lot of research goes into how the packaging can be designed um, to prevent things like ease of leakage or ease of counterfeiting. And then when it comes to the field, a lot of training is involved for farmers and retailers, as well as governments, to pro, uh, provide supporting regulations and infrastructure for farmers to communicate and manage that risk more effectively. And then finally, at the end of the life cycle, it's important that empty pesticide containers that once contain hazardous waste um, are disposed properly. And it also needs to be properly collected to prevent it from being reused for counterfeit goods. And so you have it here, start to end safety and health is really something we have to think about at every step of the way for stewardship. Well, it's a very good answer. And I, I can't help but think about the, the farmer aspect that you, you've raised there too in that whole process, not just uh, about what, the, what we're doing, but what we're doing to make sure farmers are uh, not only getting our message, but they're actually adopting it and that they're, or the message around responsible use, right? And responsible use 
the crop protection products in particular. But I know there's a big difference between the two uh, around promoting it versus actually seeing and realizing the adoption that everybody wants, ensuring responsible use for pesticides. So I know it's early, but there's some, some exciting work that you'd mentioned, uh, I know before about uh, some work that Crop Life Asia is undertaking to um, learn more about that, about what goes into the decision-making for farmers when it comes to responsible use. Can you share a little bit about that? I know it's the early going, but maybe there's some things you can talk about with that. Yeah, I would love to. So, um, you know, just now I just mentioned that there is a whole life cycle process for us and in every step of the way, the farmer is the center of it. So there are so many things that a farmer has to take into account and it's not easy for a farmer to take in everything that we train them to do. Uh, you know, all of us have been students before, so we know it's not easy to absorb every piece of information that's being passed down to us. So it wasn't hard for us to recognize that even though we invest a lot in training farmers, it may not necessarily mean that farmers will really internalize that information and practice that on the field. So recently, um, the stewardship team at CropLife has been looking into how we can improve the impact of our training. And so that's how we started exploring behavioral science as one of the ways to do so. And behavioral science, in a nutshell, is using a scientific method, borrowing from psychology and behavioral economics to understand decision making better and therefore design ways to encourage desired behaviors. Sometimes it's also known as nudge theory, meaning that you're designed like a nudge to push people in the direction that you desire. So let me try to use an example to explain this better. We all know that exercise is good for us, but this knowledge does not always motivate us to take action because the idea of exercise is pretty strenuous. You know, um, there's a lot of hassles involved in exercising. The motivation, you know, just imagining myself getting fitter and better is very attractive. But at the same time, in the short term, in the immediate environment that I'm in, I really don't feel like putting in that effort. And so nowadays, you would notice that there have been a lot of social apps that have been developed to track our exercise with our friends. So these social apps are giving us this nudge or motivation to exercise, not through a, um, using a different stimulus in our brain, apart from the idea of fitness. So the nudge here is our drive to socialize or our drive to compete, rather than the mere knowledge that exercise would help us keep fit or keep us um, in shape and in good health. Similarly, farmers have been trained to use pesticides judiciously, and we know that ultimately this benefits the farmers um, and help them with their own safety when they handle pesticides. But sometimes this knowledge may not translate to action because they want to do things fast, because they see the pests as a nuisance and they just want to, to spray um, and, and manage them, for example. And, and so there are a lot of different factors that goes into a farmer's mind when they spray. And so we engage some experts to help us research into what farmers are thinking, what motivates them, and, you know, try to design interventions to encourage behavior change. So, I mean, this is not just in agriculture. Behavior science have become a very popular tool for governments and social policies all over the world to encourage their citizens to make better decisions, for example, in financial planning, on choosing healthier food options, or smoking cessation, just to name a few. And the results have been really promising. And, and that's what, you know, really pushed us to give it a try. And as you mentioned, we're doing a pilot now in India and Vietnam. The results are not out, but we are very excited to see whether this could potentially transform the way we do stewardship at CropLife. Thanks for sharing that. No, I, I think a lot of us can relate to the nudge 
aspect of what you just described, especially when it comes to exercise, that that is uh, certainly easy to understand. And what a journey it sounds like you're on with that. So we look forward to hearing more about that in the future. Well, with the next question, I want to get back to the topic of farmers, specifically here in Asia, and thinking about the fact that more smallholders uh, reside, you know, live and work right here in Asia. I think something like 85% of the world's smallholders are, are here in Asia. So with that, come a lot of challenges that are unique to being smallholders. Access to technology, access to land, access to te- uh, finance, landholder rights issues, and a host of them. But along with that, as I said before, technology, the access to technology aspect. And frankly, uh, unfortunately, um, many of the farmers in Asia don't have access to the same technology that their counterparts in other parts of the world do enjoy. Um, but there's one exception to that I can think of, and that is when it comes to the use of drones in agriculture. And that gets to something I know that you uh, know a great deal about, probably if Asia led uh, a forum earlier this year on this very topic, the use of drones in agriculture. Can you tell us about how that forum went, what it's, what it's all about, and sort of the status of drones in ag in Asia? Yeah, of course. Uh, drones are definitely exciting development in this part of the world. Asia, like you said, has taken a lead globally in the adoption of drones in agriculture. And specific to us, we're concerned about how drones are used for spraying pesticides. So just to give you an idea, in 2019 uh, and in China alone, where the adoption of drones are highest, there were over 40,000 drones in operation in China. Mm. And we see a lot of promise in how drones can help with labor savings, with flying over difficult terrain, with better spray precision, and also reducing farmer exposure to pesticides, all of which are very helpful when you observe that Asia is home to a growing aging and urbanized population as well as many smallholder farmers. And to give you an idea of how much labor savings or how efficient drones are, um, if you would compare like the backpack conventional spray, a drone is actually 12 times more efficient. And so you can imagine why this uptick is so high in Asia. Um, But of course, with such a high uptick, the danger of misuse is equally um, high, especially because this technology is so new. And that's why we organized that forum that you talked about um, in March this year. And that brought together people from our industry and also the drone manufacturers to exchange knowledge um, in the different domains of expertise that we have um, so that we can try to innovate better uh, uh, for the safety and effective pesticide application. There are also a lot of governments in Asia in attendance and speaking about how they regulate the use of drones. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's really just, just so many things to think about. There are several factors uh, that come into play when we talk about safety, when you, talk, uh, when you use drones to spray. Uh, for example, just the nozzle alone is very complicated. Uh, how you design the nozzle would affect how it's being uh, the coverage of the fuel and how effective it is in controlling pests. At the same time, when it comes to the droplet, the droplet size is also very important to note. If it's too big, it does not spread over the leaf, for example, to help to effectively control the pest population. But at the same time, if it's too fine, it could also be drifting in the wind uh, to other non-target areas or non-target organisms. And also in terms of the formulation of the pesticide itself, it has to make sense. It cannot clog up the nozzles. So there are just so many different aspects that we had to think about. And that forum was a really great start. 
Well, I mean, you're right. It sounds like it's uh, it's as with any technology, it's it's the benefit certainly, but it's also how it's going to be regulated, how how we can ensure that it'll be used responsibly. That's exciting. Um, aspect of the work that Crop Life is is leading. Thanks for for sharing on that. Well, I want to ask you a sort of a true blue stewardship question. Uh, something something about the or rather, uh, give us maybe some insight into the term integrated pest management. This is an expression that's used a lot. I know when it comes to uh, to work around responsible use and uh, and stewardship practices on the farm. So, can you tell us a little bit about what IPM or integrated pest management is, management is all about, and not only how it relates to health and safety on a day like today, but also sustainability. Yeah, so I'd like to circle back to the first answer I gave again. Previously, I mentioned that safety and health is not just for farmers, but also consumers and the environment. But just now I said that the environment, uh, in terms of environmental health, I talked more about preventing the exposure of pesticides to bystanders, to birds, to bees, or to fish in nearby waterways. In a broader perspective, agriculture is essentially about understanding nature and through that creating optimal growth for crops. Plants, animals and humans, we all make use of nature to thrive and therefore protecting nature in agriculture is not so much an afterthought. Like if I spray, would I harm the bees, would I harm the birds? But it's more about finding this um, integration with nature, finding this harmonious coexistence in farm, uh, farming methods that makes use of nature and at the same time protects nature because we understand that we're interdependent in this ecosystem. So we try to find farming methods that contribute to biodiversity and environmental sustainability. And in return, that helps to benefit farmers in the long term. And this is exactly what Integrated Pest Management, or IPM for short, aims to do. It aims to achieve this balance by using the best combination of cultural, biological and chemical measures, including plant biotechnology as appropriate for pest control. And that goal of using such a mix and match is trying to achieve three main things. The first is that it has to make economic sense for the farmer. Secondly, it has to reduce health risk. And lastly, it has to minimize the disruptions to agrochemical, uh, sorry, agricultural ecosystems. And all CropLife International member companies abide by the United Nations FAO International Code of Conduct for Pesticide Management when it comes to IPM. Uh, but one more thing I would like to stress is that IPM should be seen as an approach rather than a one-size-fits-all solution to pest management. So IPM techniques will definitely differ for different crops, different pests, different countries, and it will also change over time with new innovations. And therefore, when we as CropLife talk about committing ourselves to this United Nations Code of Conduct, it's not so much a standard solution, but us working closely with different countries and governments to find the right mix and match uh, for an integrated pest management that suits local conditions. Um, and allow me to actually talk more about uh, sustainability since that's your question. So apart from IPM, which is definitely a key part of stewardship, we also have a very important and big part um, called container management. And in Asia, because agriculture is such a big part of people's lives, we also contribute a lot to the plastic footprint in terms of the large number of plastic pesticide containers that are being used. The tricky thing, though, is that pesticide containers are considered hazardous waste and therefore is required by many jurisdictions to be incinerated. What we have found, though, is that empty co containers, if we 
rinse them three times, the residues will fall to a level that could be deemed non-hazardous and allow for it to be recycled rather than incinerated. So what we're doing now in many countries in Asia is to work with uh, farmers firstly to train them on rinsing empty containers three times so that the residues would drop to non-hazardous levels. And we're also encouraging governments to recognize um, that once these containers are triple rings, they can be declassified. So if they can declassify this, then we can begin this process of recycling and play our part to contribute to this global action for plastic reduction. Well, th- thanks for that. It sounds like a practical solution for a, uh, a challenging problem. Uh, thanks for sharing that about container management. So we've come to the end, uh, the last question, and um, would ask you maybe to, to take a journey with us and look into the future, thinking about some of the things you talked about, maybe something else, but think about uh, what, what, what do you foresee as far as uh, one big area of progress, one thing that could be realized in the next 10 years? Maybe it's in relation to the container management piece you talked about. Maybe it's in relation to drones or some other technology uh, adoption. But what do you think? If you take a look into the future by 10 years, what do you, what do you think Alyssa, might, might be uh, realized? Yeah, 10 years is a very long time and, and so many things can change. Uh, I'm afraid to, to give a prediction, but maybe uh, what I could try to, to predict is, is the fact that this industrial revolution 4.0 or digital revolution that we call began about 10 years ago and it became the talk of the town maybe five years, five years back. Um, but being called a revolution, five to 10 years is a very short time, meaning that we are only at the beginning And I think we can regard what we see today as just the tip of the iceberg. I think we can expect people to start to grasp digital technologies better in the next few years and for fuller-fledged development to accelerate in the next 10 years. Asia also has had the benefit of this revolution to be able to leapfrog and tap into the benefits more quickly than other regions in the world. And agriculture has also been one of the biggest beneficiaries of these technologies. So eventually, now that we're at the beginning, people are still unfamiliar, but I think greater infrastructure will be developed, such as 5G, to support these technologies. And at the same time, consumers are going to become more confident on using these technologies and and with that also become more affordable. And so I think with all, all of that happening for agriculture, we can see greater precision, greater productivity and greater quality control uh, throughout the food supply chain. But when we also talk about this long-term vision, I think that environmental sustainability cannot be ignored. Sustainability, as the word itself would suggest, is a long-term endeavor, and it demands that we begin from now to see the fruits of our labor in the next 10 years. And this 10-year trajectory that we talk about uh, would be towards 2030, and that also coincides with the United Nations' desire to fulfill the Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs. And so for that reason, I think it's important that we employ our creativity and leverage this digital trend that is poised to grow, that we know will grow in the next 10 years and channel them into sustainability goals, knowing that these goals require very consistent, long-term efforts to reap its benefits. So um, I, I see these two parallel streams running together. Um, the details probably is hard to predict, but I think that's the general trend that we're headed towards. Yeah. Well, that's a good prediction. I think it's a good hope. We all, I think a lot of folks are, are, are in the same uh, 
of the same mindset, hoping that the, the technology can support that push to 2030 and realizing a lot of those SDGs. Well, Delissa, thank you for doing this. You're officially off the five good questions hot seat. You've made it and we appreciate you doing this today and look forward to hopefully doing it again. Thanks. Thank you. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview. 